The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the spring of 2016, Brett Ryan's future looked promising. He was living in a waterfront condo, had a job at a Toronto tech firm, and was just days away from his big bachelor party weekend. In a few weeks, he'd be marrying his beautiful fiance, and by all outward appearances, things never looked brighter. But like a heat mirage on a stretch of highway, it was an illusion, and Brett Ryan was about to be exposed. Join me now as we take a look into a case of deadly deception, where you'll hear how a groom-to-be would stop at nothing to keep his lies a secret, even if it meant silencing anyone who got in his way. Scarborough is a suburb east of Toronto, best known for its convenient access to the breathtaking views of Lake Ontario and scenic Scarborough Bluffs a stunning cliff formation reaching 90 meters high, overlooking the shimmering blue lake. Referred to simply as the bluffs by locals, this photographer's paradise offers a sublime backdrop for wedding and family photos. And while it's dubbed the food capital of the world because of the plethora of ethnic restaurants it offers, Scarborough also manages to retain the cosmopolitan vibe of a big city without the usual danger. But in the fall of 2007, Scarborough's suburban tranquility would be abruptly disrupted when a man shuffled into a bank, his face obscured with hospital bandages, hood pulled up tight, and arm in a sling. It was a getup that could have easily passed for a Halloween costume of the Invisible Man. There was just one problem. It wasn't Halloween. It was October 20th. When the Man of Mystery approached the teller station, what originally may have seemed like a prank turned into something more alarming when the bandaged man slid a note across the counter. The note indicated he had a gun hidden in his sling and that he wanted money. Making off with $1,115 in cash, this would only be the first in a spree of bank robberies that would rock the Scarborough community over the next several months. Although the man's disguise would change, Trading in his facial bandages for a stick-on beard, bucket hat, and dark-rimmed glasses, his M.O. remained the same. Each time he entered a bank, he approached with a limp gait of an injured elderly man, holding a black attaché case in one hand, the other always wrapped up in a sling. The intention was to come across as frail and non-threatening. That's until he stepped up to the teller and hauled his case onto the counter, clicked it open, retrieving a note, slipping it to the teller. Stay calm, have gun and sling, no games, 60 seconds, now go. 
After demanding the teller give him a few thousand dollars in large bills, the robber would then exit the building with the same deliberate slow shuffle he'd entered with. But like Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspects, as soon as he left the bank, surveillance cameras would capture his pace quickening, suddenly becoming spirited and youthful before hopping into a vehicle and speeding off onto a major highway, blending in with traffic. The bank robbery spree would last eight months, with the media quick to label the robber as the fake bearded bandit, easily a title for a character in a Saturday Night Live sketch. That is, if it hadn't have been for the horror that would unfold later. Police were quick to connect the robberies because the holdup notes were nearly identical in each heist, a theory eventually confirmed through fingerprint analysis, which concluded the same man had written each of the notes. But when police ran the fingerprints, they didn't match anything in their database. With little to go on, there was only one thing police knew that would likely happen again, and that was another heist. In anticipation, a surveillance team of 25 officers were assembled and positioned at various banks considered to be easy targets with quick getaway routes. But the fake bearded bandits seemed to be one step ahead of them, targeting a bank that wasn't under surveillance. With the surveillance tactic a bust, police needed a new plan and decided to focus on the bandit's disguise. What they discovered was that the beard the bandit was wearing wasn't an ordinary costume beard. Instead, it was the kind you'd find on a movie set, meant to look ultra-realistic, something movie experts would later confirm to police. Bank surveillance footage would later reveal not only had the robber been trying to conceal his identity, he was also attempting to skew his age, with the elderly hobble and beard with the younger man's face being revealed beneath it. Astonishingly, this insight proved to be a very valuable clue. There were only two retailers in Toronto that sold movie-grade beards like the one used in the heist, and only two such beards had been sold in the last six months. But then another snag. Those purchases had been made with cash, leaving little to trace to any specific person other than the clerk's memory that the customer was a young man who claimed he was buying the beard for his brother. Police continued working diligently to unmask, or rather to unbeard, the fake bearded bandit, with their first major break coming when the license plate of the escape vehicle was finally caught on bank surveillance. At last, police finally had something solid to work with. Immediately, they ran the license plate number to find a name. After eluding capture for eight long months and stealing $20,000 in cash, the fake bearded bandit finally had a name, Brett Ryan, a name that had never popped up on law enforcement's radar. Just who was this guy? Brett Ryan was born December 30th, 1980, the third of four brothers who, kind of like the Beatles, each had their own distinctive personalities. Christopher, the quiet one, was the eldest of the four boys, and although reserved for the most part, he wasn't afraid to let loose a little at home or with friends. Leland, the second-born, was the artsy one, interested in music, photography, and antique cabinet restoration. The brains of the outfit was AJ, who was six years younger than Brett, attended a special school for gifted students with grades off the charts, 
And then there was Brad, the lovable, outgoing, and popular one. Some would even consider him a jock, handsome and polite, presenting himself as upbeat and easygoing. And there's no doubt the boy's parents were thrilled to have raised such fine young men. In high school, Brett frosted the tips of his hair, gelled it into a tussled spike, the classic 90s boy band look, and with his deep dimples and crooked grin, he very much looked the part. But aside from outward appearances, Brett came across as a caring guy, umpiring Little League baseball games, volunteering at the local sick kids hospital, and visiting with pediatric patients. Brett did it all. In the eyes of the community, Brett was a sweet young man who seemed primed for success, an image Brett struggled to preserve while things started falling apart after high school, even if it meant taking desperate measures, measures those closest to him could have never predicted. After high school, Brett attended the University of Toronto, but dropped out in 2003 after four years. He then attempted university a second time, only to quit again in 2005. But school wasn't the only thing Brett seemed to be struggling with. Romantic relationships were also a problem. He would later blame his academic failures on two particularly bad breakups. It seemed Brett had an unhealthy tendency to shower women he was interested in with extravagant gifts he couldn't afford, even when the romantic interest wasn't reciprocated. To sell the act of a man who could afford the expensive gifts, Brett dressed in designer clothes and drove a brand new F-150 truck. But in reality, Brett was making little more than minimum wage as a house painter, a summer job he started as a student, but it now turned into a full-time gig. In order to maintain the facade, Brett racked up debt on multiple credit cards, possibly the first sign of something more sinister brewing inside him. Displays of grandiosity and impulsive spending are hallmark features of a narcissistic personality type. A show of material wealth is a quick and easy way for a narcissist to self-aggrandize and claim superiority over others. We all have a discrepancy between our ideal self, how we want to see ourselves, how we want to present ourselves to others, versus who we really are. That's Dr. Oren Amate a registered psychologist who specializes in abnormal psychology and human sexuality. He's taught at five different universities over the past 20 years in various areas of psychology. And although he's never met or treated Brett Ryan, he explains narcissistic personality type, a disorder Brett may have very well been dealing with. I've never assessed Brett Ryan, so I don't know him directly. I don't know his family background. So I will say, generally speaking, the kind of person who would do that would have narcissistic tendencies. Now, again, I, I am not diagnosing him. I want to be very clear on this. But the narcissist has extremely high what we call explicit self-esteem. That means that's if they do a questionnaire and they're asked, what do you think about yourself? How much do people like you? Are you a good leader? These kinds of questions, a narcissist will say, you know, they will they'll portray themselves in a very, very positive light on the explicit self-esteem. But the reality is they have extremely low implicit self-esteem. That discrepancy between the implicit and explicit self-esteem, A, in narcissists, it's huge. 
and B, this pattern of extremely low self, implicit self-esteem, so how they really feel about themselves versus this explicit self-esteem that is so high that they need to portray themselves as a hero, as a leader, as this person who can do anything, this grandiosity. And that kind of discrepancy, when there's any risk either of others exposing them or they seeing the truth about themselves, it's so terrifying to a narcissist. And again, I'm not diagnosing them as a narcissist, but when we see people do these really extreme acts, which seem so irrational, it's because the, the notion of being confronted with reality, it's it's anathema to them. It, it, it's, it's terrifying and, and they can't even fathom it. So they will do something completely, again, crazy, irrational, call it what you will, but it's the safer option for them. By 2007, Brett was 26 years old, single, and living back at home with his parents. He also had a staggering credit card debt of $60,000. Not an entirely completely unrelatable scenario for anyone floundering in early adulthood. And for anyone who's ever been there, knows it seems like an impossible hole to dig yourself out of. It's easy to imagine how much it must have hurt Brett to watch friends graduate university armed with degrees, powered for success, financial independence, and their own apartments, whereas Brett was caught in a riptide of debt. This was worse than a simple failure to launch. Brett had gone 60 grand in the wrong direction, and things were beginning to close in. With him now no longer able to rely on maxed out credit cards to project that image of success, his sense of self went into a tailspin. Brett needed to do something, but working hard and slowly paying off debt was out of the question. It would take far too long. Plus, it would only expose his fragile ego, and his friends would inevitably find out he wasn't the high roller he'd been pretending to be. Brett needed money, and he needed it fast. That's when his disoriented mind started spinning, and he decided on doing something extreme start robbing banks, rather successfully too. That is, until police were finally able to figure out it was him behind all the heists. Now having a real name for the fake bearded bandit, police immediately put a tail on Brett Ryan and followed him closely, watching him going to the gym, eating in restaurants, and socializing with friends. However, Brett didn't seem to exhibit an ounce of skittishness you might expect from a serial bank bandit. In fact, he'd been going about his life so calmly that when the identity of the fake bearded bandit was finally revealed and arrested, friends and family were in shock. How was this possible for someone to be living a completely different life without anyone close to him knowing? He's carrying out all these robberies on the one hand, Yet, on the other hand, he's looking like he's just, you know, living a normal life, whatever else like that. That's compartmentalization. People might think he's a psychopath to do these kind of things. I don't know that. But psychopaths are the best at compartmentalizing. They can live a dual life very easily. On one hand, compartmentalizing can be a very healthy, necessary, and deliberate practice, such as in Dr. Amate's line of work, working with victims of abuse and coming home and putting what he's heard that day aside. This is considered deliberate compartmentalization, which is healthy. But the other type of compartmentalization, 
that narcissists have, people with a variety of personality disorders have. It's unconscious, it's outside of their control, it's not healthy, and this is where, for example, somebody could talk about a terrible thing that happened to them, it's called intellectualization, where everyone else is like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing I've ever heard, and the person sounds like they're reading from a cereal box. Okay? They compartmentalize their thoughts and their feelings, right? So they're talking about a situation without any affect. Another type of compartmentalizing involves a thought in one moment versus a thought in the next such as telling a loved one how much they're loved and respected, only seconds later to say the most derogatory, condescending, hateful things. So that's compartmentalized of, of a thought in one moment versus a thought in another moment. And that part of the compartmentalization, where you say someone can just pick up and leave, you could have done something really hurtful and harmful uh, either to yourself or to others, and then be able to just, without even thinking about it, go to the next moment. Um, or emotions. One moment, someone's so sad and hurt and upset, and literally, a second later, now they're exuberant and they're happy and it is disconcerting. So this type of compartmentalization is outside of their control. There's a disconnect. It's almost like silos. My thought in this moment is disconnected from my thought in that moment, or my emotion is dis disconnected from this thought. It's, it's not healthy because there's a lack of integration. And to be able to integrate your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, okay, that takes, again, emotional maturity. It takes, you know, uh, a, co a cognitive wherewithal that some people don't have. On January 26, 2009, Brett pled guilty to 16 charges in connection to the bank robberies and faced 10 years in jail. But his friends and family stood by his side, submitting letters praising Brett's character and sense of integrity. At his sentencing, Brett also appeared genuinely remorseful, stating, I would like to say how sorry I am for the trouble I've caused everyone. I do realize that regardless of my problems, there is no excuse or any sort of justification for my extreme and selfish actions. The judge agreed and cited Brett's lack of criminal record, but perhaps more vital to his decision was the loyalty of his family stating, You're a lucky man, Mr. Ryan. You have a family behind you. I think that family will stick with you. While in custody, Brett's family did exactly that. They stood by him, taking turns visiting him in jail. When his older brother Chris found out the prison prohibited bound books, he photocopied entire novels he thought Brett would enjoy. For the robberies, Brett was sentenced to five years, but after being granted early parole, only ended up serving about two. After being released, Brett filed for bankruptcy and went about earning money honestly by taking extra shifts at restaurants. Although he attempted to restart his house painting business, the harsh reality was most potential clients didn't want an ex-con or bank robber anywhere near their homes. With their son now back at home, the Ryan's neighbors whispered and gossiped, leaving Brett's mother Sue feeling as though they'd become social pariahs. To escape the gossip, the family decided to move to a different neighborhood within Scarborough, and settled into a new home where Sue transformed their postage stamp front lawn into an elaborate garden packed with colorful curb appeal. It was the fresh start Brett needed, and with his fake bearded bandit days now behind him, he seemed ready to get his life back on track, taking on low-paying jobs and re-enrolling in university. His romantic life was also looking up, 
after a friend introduced him to a beautiful, successful woman. On paper, the new relationship should have never worked. Kristen Baxter was a successful physiotherapist, living in an upscale condo overlooking Toronto's waterfront, while Brett was an ex-con living with his parents. The two were also in completely different stages of their lives, with Kristen well-established financially and Brett practically penniless. Regardless, they seemed to hit it off from the start, and just over a year later, the couple moved in together. For Kristen, the fact her new boyfriend had a lengthy run as a bank robber didn't appear to be the red flag you'd expect, and Kristen decided to put her love and trust into Brett. After the move, Brett's living situation leveled up big time. He was finally able to move out of his childhood bedroom and into Kristen's condo, with waterfront views of Lake Ontario, a pool, and rooftop patio. Brett was now living his best life, reaping the benefits of Kristen's determination and hard work, benefits she'd earned, benefits Brett thought he just deserved. Having a financially reliable partner meant Brett now also had the means to travel, and soon the couple's social media feeds were filling up with images of them basking in winter escapes to tropical locations, sharing intimate moments on sandy beaches with stunning backdrops, along with other celebratory milestones. Brett's lifestyle had done a complete 180, and he didn't have to rob a bank to get any of it. It was the kind of redirection any parent would be relieved to see, the son the Ryans had once felt ostracized because of was now giving them a reason to be proud. A year later, Brett presented Kristen with a pricey engagement ring and proposed, and she said yes. In her eyes, her fiancé was a man who turned his life around, a man who was capable of genuine change, a strength so few people are capable of. In their short time together, Brett had managed to graduate from university with a degree in biophysics, and despite his criminal record, had also landed a promising job at a tech company, where he was sure to become a fast-rising star. Things could only get better. Sadly, Brett's father would never get the chance to see the future in store for his son. In 2014, he passed away, which is when Brett proved once again that he turned over a new leaf by stepping up and helping out his mom with odd jobs around the house, jobs she gladly paid him for. After all, Brett had a big diamond ring to pay for and the looming expense of a wedding, but the money from his mom and other jobs didn't seem to be cutting it for Brett, and he asked his mom for a loan. The moment it appeared, Brett's house of cards began to tumble. Susan would soon learn that her son had swerved off his road of redemption and had again chosen to don a disguise rather than tell the truth. As it turned out, Brett had once again been fabricating lies that led to more lies, starting with the fact that he'd never graduated university, which meant there was no degree. He dropped out in 2015 and never told his family or fiance but continued taking money from his family to pay for the imaginary school fees. Since then, he'd been playing the part of a student, 
which is unimaginable to think of the lengths he must have gone to keep up the facade. And remember that promising tech job? That too was a lie. Although the job offer itself had been real, it never came to fruition. Because once the firm found out that Brett used to be the fake bearded bandit, they withdrew their offer. A disappointment Brett never told Kristen or his family about. Instead, he doubled down. For months, Brett carried out his morning rituals of rushing out the door to his new job, only to sit in the parking garage in a shirt and tie, lunch-packed, sitting on the passenger seat, waiting long enough until Kristen left so he could return to the condo. By this point, Brett's bank account had dwindled, the vice grip around his chest tightening worse than ever before, because now the stakes were even higher than ever. If Kristen found out, she'd be sure to dump him. At least, that's how it must have played out in Brett's mind. Seething with feelings of inadequacy and determined to maintain the life he now enjoyed, Brett decided he needed to keep the truth from Kristen at all costs. But the cold, harsh reality was, Brett needed money to keep up the act, and his desperation only intensified as time went on. The last time Brett was in the situation, he became a bank robber. This time it appeared, he was going to try something different. As late in the game as it was, he was going to try telling the truth. Brett thought if he tried a new tactic with his mom and was actually honest about his situation, then maybe he'd actually be able to score the loan he so desperately needed. And so he decided to confess everything to her. Kristen, on the other hand, well, he thought she could wait to know the truth, at least until after their wedding date and after he managed to secure a real job. But Brett's mom didn't respond the way he'd hoped. Sue felt Kristen deserved to know the truth before their wedding date, believing marriage should never be entered into based on lies. And that's when she gave her son an ultimatum. Tell Kristen before your wedding day, or I will. In that moment, Brett must have felt like a wild animal backed into a corner. Over the years, he developed a pattern of turning things around when life wasn't going his way no matter what measures seemed necessary. If the truth came out now, he thought for sure he'd lose Kristen, the condo, and the life he curated on social media. And then there was the shame of it all. Everyone would know not only what a failure he was, but also the imposter yet again. One of the most powerful forces that drives people to do terrible things um, or to lie to cover up and so on is shame. And narcissists carry around so much shame. Now, consciously, they may not be aware of it because they think that they are a hero, they're doing wonderful things and so on. But somewhere down the line, when they were a child, they internalized this shame, which they were able to kind of, well, to, to repress. So they're not aware of it. But everything they do in life, basically, is to protect them from being exposed to something that would uh, trigger this shame. And shame is at the root of so many problems, whether it's substance abuse, um, you know, bad decisions, and so on. I don't know how much shame Brett Ryan was carrying, but I would assume that being caught and exposed and so on, like you know, the banks for you know losing jobs for this and that, right, for not being as great as he wants to see himself, that shame, I'm inferring, was so terrifying to him. And so 
so potent and toxic that he did everything in his power not to have to confront it. And so he did the most shameful thing you can imagine. With his back against the wall and seeing no way out, Brett decided to do the unthinkable. And it was a whole lot worse than lying some more or going back to his old ways of robbing banks. On the morning of August 25th, 2016, Brett got ready alongside Kristen for his pretend job, just like he'd done countless mornings before. As far as Kristen knew, it was just another routine morning, the kind of morning any normal couple would have, excited for their upcoming wedding and for the new house they were looking to buy. Sensing absolutely nothing might be wrong, Kristen left for work. Once she was gone, Brett concocted an elaborate scheme to make it look like he'd never left the condo that day, starting by duct taping a wooden spoon to an oscillating fan with his laptop propped next to it. He then plugged it into a timer. Once activated, the spoon would intermittently grace the touchpad and open up YouTube. What Brett was doing was creating a digital alibi, one he knew he'd need later for that day. Using this same technique, Brett placed two more fans on the granite countertop in the kitchen, duct taping a stylus instead of a spoon to each of them. In front of one fan, Brett screwed his phone onto a board so the stylus would again stroke the screen. In front of the other, he placed his tablet. These two were set to digital timers that would put the fans in motion at various times throughout the afternoon. Obviously, this wasn't a plan he'd come up with overnight, but without a job to go to, it appears the proverb, idle hands are the devil's workshop, came into play for Brett. Brett wore two pairs of jeans that day, one right on top of the other, knowing his outer layer would likely get messy. In a gym bag, he packed a separate disguise that included the bucket hat from his days as the fake bearded bandit. Along with the disguise, Brett also tossed in a few arrows, or bolts, for a junior-sized crossbow he'd purchased online. Because of his criminal record, Brett was prohibited from owning a firearm, and even though the purchase of a crossbow was entirely legal, he bought it secondhand so it wouldn't be traceable back to him. Days after Brett's mother gave him her ultimatum, he hid the crossbow in her garage. For his final alibi, Brett still needed to get to his mother's house without being seen, and in order to do that, he needed to avoid all security surveillance cameras near Kristen's condo. A skill he no doubt acquired from successfully robbing banks for eight months. That morning, Susan's plans to go shopping with a neighbor were interrupted when Brett showed up unexpectedly, pleading once again with her not to tell Kristen the truth. Again, Susan refused. As the argument intensified, Susan called her oldest son Chris to come home to help de-escalate the conversation as Leland, Brett's other brother, lay asleep in his bedroom. With Sue not budging, Brett knew he had to implement plan B. That's when Brett walked through the house and out into the garage to grab the crossbow he'd stashed earlier. But unexpectedly, Sue had followed him. And before Brett could load the crossbow, he dropped it. It's not that Brett suddenly had second thoughts. Not at all. In fact, 
He was still holding the bolt for the crossbow, with its broadhead tip and three razor-sharp serrated blades, the kind hunters use when shooting to kill. This wasn't a moment where Brett suddenly had a change of heart. Instead, it was a moment he realized he'd have to improvise, and the bolt would have to do. In that moment, Brett violently swung toward his mother with the bolt, slashing her cheek and ear. Startled, Sue attempted to fight back, but lost her footing and tumbled into some hardwood flooring being stored in the garage for renovations. Mercilessly, Brett used the opportunity to finish what he'd started and used a nylon rope to strangle the woman who brought him into the world until she died. Sue Ryan was 66 years old. Realizing he didn't have much time before his older brother Chris came home, Brett recovered the crossbow, picked it up, and properly loaded it this time. So when Chris stepped into the garage, Brett was ready, stealthily creeping up behind him, the same brother who'd photocopied entire books so Brett could keep his mind sharp during his stint in prison. Brett then aimed the weapon and pulled the trigger. The bolt plunged into the back of Chris's neck with such force, the bladed tip exited his mouth. At age 42, Chris died immediately. Brett had anticipated getting some blood on himself, precisely the reason he'd worn a second layer of clothing. But the blood soaked through clear to his skin, he'd need to find something else to wear. Maybe his brother's clothes, but he still had his disguise, a wig and bucket hat. He'd still set up his elaborate digital alibi, and the only two witnesses were now dead. It was looking like he might just get away with it. Trying to cover up the scene, Brett put his oldest brother's body on top of his mother, covering them with a tarp. He was almost at the finish line when, unexpectedly, his younger brother AJ showed up. Even though his brothers had never been a part of his original plan, they tragically became collateral damage. That's when Brett seized another crossbow bolt and met 29-year-old AJ on the path to the back door. Catching him off guard, Brett stabbed him in the neck. His youngest brother then staggered toward the driveway before collapsing. But AJ wasn't the last of Brett's brothers. Remember Leland, the second oldest brother, who'd been at home the entire time taking a nap? Eventually, he woke up and heard the commotion. Opening the door to look outside, Leland saw the bloody reality of what Brett had just done to his youngest brother AJ. Immediately, Leland dashed back inside to call 911, but Brett came after him, lunging to stop him, with a long and brutal fight breaking out. As the two brothers sparred up and down the hallways and into bedrooms, they knocked family photos off the walls, leaving a trail of blood behind them. If Brett could eliminate Leland, that meant there was still a possibility he could get away with everything, and he could marry Kristen. Even if she found out he'd lied about having a job and a biophysics degree, how could she be mad at him if he lost his entire family? She'd have to forgive him. His money problems would also be solved, because he would be the only surviving heir to the family inheritance. It seemed as though he'd thought of everything. There was just one final obstacle, 
Leland. Leland finally got the edge he needed and broke free and escaped outside. With Brett still following behind him, Leland made a frantic dash toward a neighbor's home. Call 911, Leland yelled as he pummeled the door. When the neighbors let him inside, Leland passed out in their living room. Thankfully, he would survive his injuries. Brett knew it was all over with chilling calmness, returning to his family's home to grab a bottle of water from the fridge. He then sat down on the front steps of his mother's home, just feet away from his dying brother AJ, and took a swig, waiting for the cops to arrive. This time, Brett couldn't shield himself with a disguise or lies, the blissful future he'd envisioned and nearly killed his entire family over had popped like a soap bubble. When police finally arrived on the scene, Brett stated with flat effect, as his brother AJ lay dying, I should have driven him to the hospital. The guys in the garage are dead, crossbow to the head. It was me. Sadly, AJ too would die from his injuries. It's impossible to fully grasp what Brett might have been thinking when he annihilated his entire family. Why he hadn't just admitted the truth to Kristen instead of killing people who loved him the most. Surely confessing to what amounts to banal deceit was a far lesser evil. But for Brett Ryan, his ego wouldn't allow it. He was acting in defense of an imagined version of himself that didn't exist. If someone, whether it's family pressure, whether it's cultural, whether it's just in, however they internalized it, if they feel such pressure to live up to this ideal, it can lead them to do, you know, things that, again, we would find irrational. But it's just it's terrifying because they don't either they don't want to disappoint others or they don't want to come face to face with the reality of I am not who I think I am or who I need to be. After discovering the grisly scene, police were immediately concerned for Kristen Baxter's well-being and sent a squad car to her condo for a welfare check. That's when they came across Brett's elaborate and bizarre-looking setup of alibi devices and oscillating fans. Immediately, the building was evacuated and a bomb squad was called in. Although Kristen has never publicly commented about the actions of her fiancé that day, a close family friend spoke on her behalf, stating that her world had crumbled. When Brett was brought to trial for the murder of his family, he pled guilty. For the death of his mother, Brett was allowed to plead guilty to second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder, premeditated murder. Why? Because Brett told the court he only meant to threaten his mother with a crossbow, but then things got out of hand. Though one would think the efforts he put into creating his digital alibi and disguise kit would suggest otherwise. Because he waited for his brother Chris in the garage, Brett was convicted of first-degree murder. For the murder of his youngest brother, AJ, Brett was convicted again of second-degree murder since AJ's arrival at the house had been unexpected. At sentencing, Brett told the court he was sick with grief over what he'd done. Whether that's true, we'll never know. Leland Brett's sole surviving brother addressed the court, stating that although he forgave his brother, he never wanted to speak to him again. In the end, 
Brent Ryan received three life sentences, plus 10 years for the attempted murder of Leland, and won't be eligible for parole until 2041, when he'll be 61 years old. Brent Ryan feared his mother would blow up his cushy life with Kristen and tarnish the reputation he'd been working to reinvent. Yet, in the end, it was Brett who blew up his own life. The gains Brett had made, going from a bank bandit to establishing a relationship with a sympathetic and empathetic woman who was willing to start a life with him, isn't the typical trajectory of many ex-cons. Brett Ryan had a life full of second chances, a fiancé who only saw the good in him, but was willing to share all of her successes with him. A family who stood by his side time and time again. A mother who gave him the benefit of the doubt over and over, only wanting for her son to start his new chapter in marriage, honestly. Yet Brett chose himself over all of them. I'd like to give a special thank you to Dr. Orrin Amate for sharing his insights in this episode. If you'd like to hear more about his work, we've provided links in our episode notes. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>